I drive a pretty small pickup truck, but I used to drive this massive SUV. It was big and I had to haul loads of AV equipment all over the place for work. So owning a small hotel room on wheels was good. Well, professionally, at least. I'm not the kind of person who gets rowdy over cars and definitely not if the car itself is rowdy. I don't experience any joy relative to engine power or the distance at which one might hear said engine's vrooms. But every time I got into that old truck and it was satisfying, that sound became this overture to getting things done, of being able to trek hundreds of pounds of gear, hundreds of miles, and if I ended up having to drive through a flooded valley road or transport a dozen nuns whose bus broke down on the Taconic, well, whatever, bring it on. I got rid of that truck about 10 years ago. It's kind of nice not being the guy that people call to haul stuff. It was also hard to park and criminally fuel inefficient. I do not miss having $60 a week dissipate into the atmosphere for financial and environmental reasons. But sometimes I do wish my current car sounded better, whatever that means. I've been thinking about this as my wife and I are shopping around for a new car, test driving things. Not because I'm dead set on buying something that sounds good, I've just been curious. How do different engines in different cars? sound. Some of them purr, some rumble, and some. A few friends own Teslas, and in the city it's one thing because maybe the train is rattling overhead loud enough that you wouldn't be able to hear a combustion engine anyway, but if you're coming upon a stoplight in the blasted heath of the suburbs, the quietness of an electric motor can be a little eerie. Aside from the aesthetic stuff of maybe just really enjoying the rumbles of a combustion engine, surely there are other things that a whisper-quiet motor lacks too. Warning for nearby pedestrians and cyclists, a feedback mechanism for the driver, a sonic trademark for the manufacturers of those engines. Well, it turns out a new set of laws coming into effect pretty soon are going to require electric vehicles to make noise. More noise. And for this episode of Reasonably Sound, I talked to some of the people who designed those noises, electric vehicle engine sounds, to be exact. Dan and Joel from Man Made Music, a sound design studio here in New York, and Richard Devine, an electronic musician and sound designer based in Atlanta. I asked them what they think about the current state of electric engine sounds and what they're looking forward to. But first... An answer to a question I've had for a very, very long time and which has kind of been preoccupying me while going on all these test drives. Why do combustion engines sound the way they do? And maybe more importantly, why does a Jaguar sound different from a Toyota, sound different from a Lamborghini, sound different from a Dodge? An explanation after the break.
First, some Combustion Engine 101. Combustion engines use a mixture of air and fuel, which is sparked inside of a cylinder and which fires a piston. You've probably seen a piston at some point. It's a round piece of metal on top of an arm. There's a picture of one on this episode's cover at reasonablysound.com if you need a refresher. The vast majority of automobiles are four-stroke engines. That means each piston moves up and down in its cylinder four times to complete the combustion cycle. On a piston's intake stroke, that combustible air-fuel mixture is drawn into the cylinder as the piston moves downward. The valves that supply fuel are then sealed, and the piston reverses direction to begin a compression stroke, which pressurizes the contents of the cylinder. The spark plug then fires, creating a small explosion which pushes the piston down in the cylinder again. That is the power stroke. It generates the power that spins a car's wheels. And then the final stroke is the exhaust stroke, where the exhaust valve opens and the piston pushes exhaust out of the cylinder. As the piston reaches the top of the exhaust stroke, the exhaust valve closes, the intake valve opens, and the cycle repeats. One way to describe the power of an engine is how many cylinders it has. You can have a four-cylinder, six-cylinder, eight, 12, even 16-cylinder engine. This is the first of four things that'll impact how an engine sounds, the number of cylinders it has. And I mean, naturally, if there are more explosions happening under the hood of your car, you're going to get a different sound. Here's a four-cylinder engine versus an eight-cylinder engine versus a 12-cylinder engine. Now, that's not the whole story. Each of these engines is different in several other ways that also impact how it sounds. The second thing that impacts the sound of an engine is its crankshaft. What's a crankshaft? Good question. So the arm of each piston, called a connecting rod, is connected to the crankshaft the rotation of which causes, through a series of other mechanical junctions, a car's wheels to spin. A firing piston spins the crank, the crank spins the wheels. Now, there are two different types of crankshaft, flat plane and cross plane. This is where we're going to kind of start to brush up against the limits of what's easy to understand just by talking at you, but we're definitely going to try. So, on a flat plane crank, there are 180 degrees between crank throws, which is the spot on the crank where pistons connect. That's probably a little hard to visualize, so let's talk about it in practice. On an inline four-cylinder engine, meaning it's four cylinders all in a row, pistons one and four are going to be at the same position in their cylinder, with pistons two and three at the same position in their cylinder but 180 degrees out of phase from pistons one and two. So if pistons one and four are at the top of their cylinder, pistons two and three will be at the bottom of theirs, and vice versa. That's 180 degrees between crank throws on a flat plane crank. Now, just to be clear, this doesn't mean that any two pistons are on the same stroke of the four-stroke combustion cycle we just talked about. It just means that they're both at roughly the same position within their respective cylinders. 
We're going to talk more about this in a moment when we get to firing order. Now, a cross-plane crank, as opposed to a flat-plane crank, has 90 degrees between crank throws, so piston positions are more staggered. In practice, on an inline four-cylinder engine, again, one piston would be near the top of its cylinder, another would be near the bottom of its cylinder, and two would be at about the halfway point, moving in opposite directions. If you want to see all of this in action, how different cranks produce different movements, I'm going to drop a link to a YouTube video in the show notes at reasonablysound.com. Now, the crankshaft itself, flat or cross-frame, does have an impact on the sound of your engine, but it is highly dependent upon the third sound-determining factor, firing order. So we're going to talk about that first, but I just I want to do a little check-in. How you feeling? Feeling all right? You're doing really well. Maybe we'll take a little bit of a breather. Okay, enough rest. Firing order. When a spark plug ignites the compressed air-fuel mixture in a cylinder, it is said to fire. Each cylinder has a spark plug, and the order in which every spark plug sparks is an engine's firing order. For an inline four-cylinder engine, it's probably piston one, followed by piston three, then piston four, then piston two. For a Ford V8, piston one fires first, followed by eight, four, three, six, five, seven, two, and then it repeats. The third thing that influences engine sound isn't firing order per se, but the rhythm of the firings, and on which side of the engine the fired piston is located. So while some engines fire pistons regularly in a consistent rhythm, like some put longer or shorter gaps between certain firings, like this creates an uneven sort of burbling noise as opposed to the regularly timed firings, which create a more consistent hum or purr. Engine sound is also impacted by whether or not firings alternate cylinder banks. What does that mean? Well, maybe you've heard the term V6 or V8. A V engine is different from an inline engine. Inline means the pistons are just in a line. V means that they're in two different lines, angled away from one another and in a V shape, meeting at the crankshaft. Alternating firings means that after a piston in bank one has been fired, a piston in bank two fires, and then back to bank one. This makes the sound a little bit more consistent and mechanical. But non-alternating firings, bank one, bank two, bank two, bank one, for instance, make an engine sound less consistent and more burbly. So maybe it's a little clearer now why the crankshaft and firing order are related. The location of each piston in its cylinder is determined by the shape of the crank and determines when and in what order spark plugs fire. For instance, because of their configuration, every cross-plane V8 engine must have non-alternating firings. Those two things just go together. There's no way around it. Like soup has broth, like Marvel films have sequels, it's just how they're made. 
But the crank also impacts engine sound thanks to its weight. Crossplane cranks have to be heavier in order to provide stability for the type of movement they generate. So they spin slower and they rev harder. They're used in pretty much every V8 road car as opposed to a track or a race car. And most notably, in most American muscle cars, a large engine with a crossplane crank, an uneven and non-alternating firing order, all adds up to the American muscle car's familiar gurgle at low RPMs and roar at high RPMs. Flat plane cranks tend to be lighter, so they can spin faster and accelerate more quickly, but since they're light, they're susceptible to damage from vibration, so they're mostly kept out of high RPM engines, except where manufacturers can spend the design and material resources to make sure that the thing doesn't just tear itself apart while it's tearing around a track. Or, I don't know, the Hollywood Hills. Flat plane cranks are used in all inline four-cylinder engines, but also in many performance and racing cars because the acceleration that they should be capable of and, depending upon who you ask, they're justifiably high price tag. Bring that cash out. This crank is used in the design of many European sports cars made by Lotus, Porsche, Ferrari, McLaren, etc. Combined with an even firing order, these engines were at low RPMs, and when they really open the throttle, they make this super precise, high-pitched sound. Which brings us to the one final thing that makes a combustion engine sound the way it does. And that is everything else. The exhaust system, the intake and fuel injection systems, how and where the pistons are attached to the crank, the volume of each cylinder, the engine materials, the chassis material, the body shape and material, probably the thickness of the license plate and what you've hung from the rear view mirror does something. But you can think of all of these things as shape rather than source. These factors filter the sound of the engine, which is determined largely by its size, crank, and firing characteristics. Many, if not most, car manufacturers, and definitely all of the higher-end ones, go to some length to tune their engines, literally. They may engineer pockets of resonance and consider pipe lengths, widths, and exhaust types. They'll make various material considerations, and they'll use all sorts of methods to build the perfect engine sound that reflects what they want their car to be about. Which is to say, in a lot of ways, engine sound has been something of a derived vehicle attribute, a mechanical byproduct considered an indication and symbol of an engine's power. And in a lot of ways, a car's personality, its quality, based quite literally upon how it's built, what parts are in it, how they operate, how they're arranged. So how does one approach the problem of inventing an engine sound? Whole cloth. No physicality or material to start with. Do you invent a virtual engine first? Or do you start somewhere totally different? How much of all this historic stuff, the explosions, the metal, the vibrations, the tubes, and the resonances, how much of it do you try to copy or learn from? Or do you just throw it all out? After the break... We learn why electric motors make no sound, why that's a problem, and we talk to Dan, Joel, and Richard about their engine sound, 
sound designs. The joke I've heard more than once is that a Prius is the most dangerous car on the road because you just cannot hear it coming. I mean, it does have a small combustion engine, a four-cylinder to be exact, but it's also got two electric motors powered by batteries. And that is what propels the car when you're driving at a relatively low speed around the city. The mechanics of those motors is pretty straightforward. I mean, compared to a combustion engine, at least it's... um. Quicker to explain, the batteries provide electricity to something called a stator. The stator is a hollow cylinder bolted to the chassis, the walls of which are packed with these wire coils. A rotor is inserted through the stator. Either end of the rotor is connected via a few mechanical junctions to the car's wheels. When batteries power the stator, those coils of wire create a rotating magnetic field which grabs the rotor and spins it. This rotates the tires. When you press the accelerator, more electricity, faster spinning magnetic field, a faster spinning rotor, more miles per hour, but very little sound. No cylinders, no explosions, pistons or spark plugs, just the slight hum of electricity and magnetism. I mean... When you really cook, when you put that Prius pedal to the Prius metal, or um, plant-derived ecological bioplastic, I guess, the combustion engine kicks in and you're going to make some tiny vrooms, but in electric mode, quiet as a mouse. A large electric mouse, which causes some problems. So manufacturers have started adding an engine sound back into car models which lack one. I talked to some folks who designed these aftermarket Sonic editions. First, to Dan Venn from Man Made Music here in New York. My name is Dan Venn, and I'm uh, the lead creative director at Man Made, and I've been with the company for, give or take, uh, nine or ten years. Uh, and just so you know. So Man Made is a, a global Sonic studio, and then that means we do anything from themes for networks, themes for television shows, to sonic branding, to strategies for brand and how they should use sound, where they should use sound, what type of sound they should use. Sonic branding strategies. I love it. And I also talked to Richard Devine. My name is Richard Devine. I am an electronic producer uh, based from Atlanta, Georgia. I also do work as a sound designer. I guess you could say I'm a sound designer at my day job and an electronic musician by night. Dan and his team worked with Nissan to develop an engine sound for a fleet of their electric cars. Richard worked with Jaguar on their I-Pace, a late model electric vehicle. He designed their engine sound and also all the user interface and alert sounds. Each of them approached their design tasks in sometimes similar, sometimes different ways, but there was one unifying aspect right at the outset. This happened was because of a legislative law that got passed in the United Kingdom that said that electric vehicles um, had to emit a sound for people that were uh, blind or couldn't see very well or had some sort of disabilities. But it is fairly rigid. So it's a small, you know, imagine you've got a big canvas and it keeps getting smaller and smaller and, and smaller because of 
the technical capabilities and what the regulations are. But still within that small canvas, there's still a lot, a lot of room to play. A bunch of countries are passing laws that require electric vehicles to produce some kind of warning sound when traveling at lower speeds. According to Wikipedia, Japan produced a set of guidelines in 2010. The U.S. did the same and will require full compliance by 2020. The EU passed legislation in 2014, which gives a five-year transitional period until full compliance is required. And just um, looking at my calendar here, that, oh, oh, that's right now. To give you a sense of what those requirements are like, here's how one EU document, the proposal for a new regulation concerning the approval of quiet road transport vehicles, submitted by the United Nations Economic and Social Council Working Party on Noise in 2015, reads... Six period, two period, one period, two period. When tested under the conditions of Annex 3, paragraph three period, three period, two, the vehicle shall emit a sound, A, that has a minimum overall sound pressure level for the applicable test speed according to table two of paragraph six period, two period, eight period, B, that has at least two of the one third octave bands according to table two of paragraph six period, two period, eight period. At least one of these bands shall be below or within the 1,600 hertz one third octave band, and C, with minimum sound pressure levels in the chosen bands for the applicable test speed according to table two of paragraph six period, two period, a period, column three, or column four. I'll post a link in the show notes if you want to see which frequency bands they're specifying, but I hope it suffices to say they're specifying frequency bands, as well as locations relative to and distances from the car where certain frequencies must be heard at certain loudnesses. This gets to Dan's point. It's restrictive, but, you know, you work to make something unique and meaningful within that restriction. Meaningful how, you might ask? Well, with the regulation, there's a new catalyst for creativity, right? Now there's a need to create a sound that is not just regulation, but something that's branded. And that's that's kind of where our expertise comes in. You got to make something that sounds like a Nissan or like a Jaguar, but not just what people are familiar with from their combustion models, because that doesn't capture what's important about these new electric model brands. You know, a brand might say we want to sound um, optimistic and forward-leaning, or we want to feel these things, right? Though we want to hear zero emissions. So Dan's got to ask himself, what does zero emissions sound like? Things were a little different for Richard and Jaguar. Their first references to me were uh, the... Tron light cycle bikes and the uh, space pod racers in Star Wars. Those were actually two audio files that they gave me in the brief. But then, of course, also. Jaguar was like, well, this could also be a great opportunity for us to define a new generation of vehicles. I basically got some concept proofs of who their target market is and like what the essence of a Jaguar really is. I kind of had to break it down. Dan told me he wanted to capture the sex appeal of a powerful combustion engine, but without any of the same sonic references to mechanics, fuel, and combustion. They wanted to make something totally unique, but still powerful sounding. So he started thinking, like, what's going to be the unique compositional elements or the unique sonic elements, I should say, that are going to make the sound feel like identifiable, ownable. He mentioned film composers, like reasonably sound favorite Hans Zimmer. And how something a lot of film composers do is they find their instrument stack, a set of sounds that, when paired together, makes a signature timbre. Manmade wanted to find that 
for an engine sound. Richard, on the other hand, went back in time is what I what I did is I went and researched their older cars, the actual motor vehicle line. I went and actually did indoor and outdoor recordings of all their, their cars. And what I did was uh, did basically an engine study is what I called it. So I listened to the cars at all these different RPMs when they were just at idle position up to full acceleration on the highway. He then resynthesized those combustion engine sounds, turned them into sine waves and looked at their harmonics for stuff that he might learn from, borrow, and recombine into something new. Neither of these approaches is completely unlike how a combustion engine sound comes together. They're just representative of a bottom-up versus top-down approach. The stack in a combustion engine is the combination of mechanical elements that work together to produce that unique sound. The harmonics are the end result the sound produced by the engine and then shaped by the materials and design of the rest of the car. They did both figure out that though a combustion engine may have a regular sort of timing to it, even if it is regularly irregular, that sort of thing doesn't work when making a sound for an otherwise silent electric motor. Repetitive modulations, beats, any kind of rhythm became just difficult to listen to, especially over long periods of time. They both settled on something smooth and well, electronic. Here is what Richard ended up making for the Jaguar I-Pace. And this is what man-made designed for Nissan. I'll let them describe their own work. It's very electrical. The key for me with the I-Pace is like I wanted to sound like electrical energy. Like that was um, my main focus. I didn't want there to be any sort of like hint of mechanics or anything involved. I wanted to sound like plasma powering up inside this electrical kind of engine. I wanted this to sound like this sort of like electrical mechanism or organism that was powering uh, up as you turn the ignition key. So that electrical sound also was taking pieces of the harmonics that I had studied with the, the older line. So I had hints of um, the harmonics and pitches from their existing car line that were also in this sound. So there was a little bit of a, a tie to the past, but kind of melded into the present with you know the, the new futuristic sound. On the solution that went into the car, we went to some fundamental elements and then manipulated them from there. I also spoke with Joel Beckerman, head man at Manmade Music. My name is Joel Beckerman. I'm the founder of Manmade Music, and I'm also a composer. And he described their sound, which they named Kanto, or I Sing, like this. I sing because it, it has a bit of a human voice quality to it. And I think also that it is very human. Um, in, in a lot of ways, the more complex our technology gets, the more sophisticated our technology gets, really the more we have to humanize it. And sound is a, is a huge opportunity in terms of humanizing technologies and having technology meet people where they are, rather than people having to meet technology where it is. To Joel's point about humanizing, while he does mean make more human-like to a degree, he also means make more considerate of humans. If you get the opportunity to design a new sound, one which might be ubiquitous, and you can design it from the ground up, why not try to make it pleasant? 
That's not to say that you can't enjoy the sound of a grumbly, gas-powered beast of a car. Just maybe that we've learned to love certain sounds for what they represent over and possibly above their sonic qualities. The cross-frame V8-inspired roar of my old SUV was a sonic mark of capability. And I think I liked that, what it represented more than the sound itself. Which, thinking back, is like, you know, it was cool. It's kind of boring. But what if you could like both? What if you could like both the sound and what it represents? I mean, granted, we're getting into some pretty weedy questions about taste and preference here, but maybe what we're wondering is, what does it mean to try to make a motor sound that is, broadly speaking, pretty? We're going to take a quick break, and in the last act of this episode, we're going to talk about teaching people about the changing nature of transportation through sound design. Maybe you didn't know any of the stuff about combustion engines at the start of this episode, about cranks and firing order, but I wonder how much of it you kind of like half knew. Just by being in the world, hearing different sorts of machinery, hearing cars and other transportation mechanisms, there's a lot that you just pick up, by which I mean like beyond just, hey, that's the sound a car makes. You know about fuel and metal, vibrations, exhaust. You hear a big engine and it has a feeling. And increasingly, especially in 2019, that sound has ecological references. It's not just the sound of an engine. All this stuff adds up and becomes the sound of a car. That is how cars sound. And depending upon where you live, cars are how an environment sounds. I mean, CF reasonably sound episode 41, basically. But the times, they are. A change in. This is a big reason why Richard, Dan, Joel, Nissan, Jaguar, whoever else, might not go record a combustion engine and then just play that as the sound of an otherwise quiet electric vehicle. There's an ethic at work here. If cars are different, shouldn't they sound different? And don't cars need to be different? Shouldn't they be different? Why continue on the same sonic path if all other paths must diverge or... And the changing sound of transportation is, in a sense, the sonification of the combustion engine's slow, thankful demise. If we're fast, smart, and more than a little lucky, maybe also the sound of continued human life on Earth. Sorry, I'm not trying to be a downer. Let's get hopeful. Here's Joel again on the future of urban acoustic ecology in the age of the sound-designed electric vehicle. Here's the amazing opportunity we have right now. Electric cars don't make a sound at the moment. In fact, there's a lot of digital technology that doesn't make a sound. So we have this incredible opportunity for the first time for human beings to actually be able to design our environments in terms of the soundscape in cities, how they may combine, and, and to think about it almost as like a symphony. And how are we going to help design that symphony in ways that suit people and make cities even more livable? 
In more ways than one, a designed motor sound can send the message that, you know, we're all kind of in this together. You can purposefully design motor sounds that are literally in harmony with one another in the same way one may hope the machinery itself is in harmony with its environment, if you'll excuse the massively pandering cliches. As much as a cynic as I am about a lot of these things, like humanity's ability to overcome a reliance on fossil fuels, major corporations choosing environmental concerns over the shareholders, even if the literal end of the world hangs in the balance, electric vehicles not somehow being a secret Faustian bargain, and really, we should all just be biking everywhere, etc., etc., etc. The idea that a literal chorus of motor sounds may someday signify, among many other things, our avoidance of annihilation, that, I mean, that gets me right in the end time feels. I guess maybe this is what Joel meant by sonic humanism. But of course, there are skeptics and traditionalists. While researching this episode, I saw no shortage of whinging about feeble-sounding electric motors and the attempt to beef them up. They sound wimpy because they are wimpy. That's not what a car sounds like. And so on as well as lamentations about the decline of the vehicular soundscape. A world without the roar of a Dodge Challenger Hellcat is a world that's just a little less fun, writes Jordan Golson on The Verge. Here's what a Hellcat sounds like, by the way. To these folks, there are two responses. First, from Richard Devine, who says, actually... The future of engine sounds could be more fun than our present, though potentially at the cost of Joel's euphonious predictions. You know, this is not a very difficult process. I bet in the future you'll be able to hot rod your car out like these people do with like adding these giant mufflers and stuff. But it's going to go back to kind of like the base wars where people are putting all these base cabinets in their car. I bet there'll be software, there'll be downloads where you could download different cars. Like maybe I want to make my car sound like a Ferrari today or a Porsche 911 Carrera or... Um. As the onboard systems which reproduce designed engine noises, a combination of digital signal processing, synthesis and sample playback within the car's onboard computer routed to speakers placed throughout the car's chassis, as this system gets more powerful, more robust, and is able to produce a wider range of sounds, Richard sees no reason why, as long as you're within the regulations, you can't make your car sound however you want. It's going to open a whole world of possibilities, because now you really don't have any limitations. You could do whatever you want, which is, it could be exciting and terrifying at the same time. You want to make your Prius sound like a Porsche, an F-150 pickup, a Lexus, a Tron light bike? You do it up. One final thing to keep in mind is that even the classic-sounding cars don't sound like themselves anymore. Much in the same way hotcakes no longer sell like hotcakes, many of these famously roaring, purring engines don't roar or purr. In the pursuit of fulfilling consumer demand for cheaper, more fuel-efficient vehicles, beefy and sporty engines have shrunk, been made more efficient, and they've gotten quieter. To counteract this, several manufacturers, Porsche, Ford, Lexus, BMW, Volkswagen, and Audi, at least, have juiced the sonic presence of some models, either with creative acoustic architecture that targets the ears of the driver, or with good old-fashioned reinforcement, playback, and amplification, in the case of the 2012 BMW M5 and 2015 Ford Mustang EcoBoost, not sure about the later models, through the car stereo itself. The response to this discovery was derision, mostly, 
with people posting on forums asking how one goes about disabling the sound support system and seeking advice on how to more mechanically add it back in to get the timbre they prefer. On Jalopnik, a story titled The 2015 Ford Mustang EcoBoost Fakes Its Engine Noise features a headline image of a Mustang with the words fake, fake, fake all over it. Joel and Richard both said that Everyone they'd spoken to about their respective design projects, journalists, car aficionados, etc., were psyched about the direction of designed engine and motor sounds. So maybe outside a small set, the fake, fake, fake anxiety is one we're moving past as we move into a new era of automobiles, as they change to suit our shifting circumstances, and as we learn how to communicate and emphasize the importance of that change with sound. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go record this Maserati that parks on my block sometimes just in case Molly and I end up buying a Prius. My name is Mike Rignetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND and me at Mike Rignetta. Thank you to Dan, Van, Joel, Beckerman, and Pam Workman at Manmade Music. You can see more of their work at manmademusic.com. And you can hear more of Joel's thoughts on how sound impacts our everyday life in his book, Sonic Boom. And thanks to Richard Devine, whose new record, Sort Lave, is out now on Time Sig Planet Mew Records. If you guys want to check out some crazy alien sci-fi modular music, it's that's pretty much what it is. So, I mean, you know I'm a fan. If you want to support the show, you can do so per episode at patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound. If you want to support me in all my internet endeavors, including but not limited to reasonably sound, you can do that per month on drip at d.rip forward slash Mike Rugnetta. Reasonably Sound also has snazzy as heck shirts for sale at Cotton Bureau. Links to all these things in the show notes and at reasonablysound.com. But of course, however you can help out is much appreciated. Write a review on iTunes, share the show on social media, tell your friends about it, or even just drop me a line with tips, reactions, and episode ideas. Whatever you got, I love it. Super duper thanks to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons, subscribers, supporters, and t-shirt wearers with an extra special thanks to Harry Brisson, Johnny C., Richard Hansen, David Rorick, Jason Scott, and Vigile. Vigile? 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 I'm really sorry. You deserve better. If this is your first episode as a Loud Hailer patron, you will hear your name next episode because of how Patreon clears pledges. I promise I didn't forget you. Reasonably Sound's theme is by Will Stratton. Its visual design is by Tita Tepp.